Attention, all troops. She's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. I saw Die Hard at the movies the week it opened with a good friend of mine. Because we were young and we had summers off, we liked going to the movies on weekdays. We had heard about Die Hard mostly because we had heard a lot about Bruce Willis. I am from New Jersey, and if you happen to have a celebrity that is from your area or region, then those people tend to stand out and people talk about them. And when Bruce Willis had become a big star because of the TV show Moonlighting, he was instantly elevated to a larger star than he even was in our house. Frankly, I'm surprised we didn't have a photo of him hanging above the dining room table at that point. My family was so infatuated with him. I had not heard anything about Die Hard going into the movie, but only Bruce Willis was in it, and therefore it might be worth seeing. My friend and I sat in a half-empty theater, film came on, and it was a great movie-going experience. I was so deeply drawn into the film that when it ended, it was almost a shock. We sat there as the lights turned on and the music came up, talking about the film, and we didn't really know what to say. We had seen a lot of action films up to that point. A lot of Stallone films, a lot of Schwarzenegger films. But I think at that point, what had happened, something we couldn't vocalize, was that we had seen something new, something different, a different type of action film. And it was exciting. And it's probably why I would go to see the film a second time the very next day. So deeply immersed in the film was I, that when I left, the fact that it was the summer in New Jersey, and it was a pretty warm day if I remember right, was actually jarring. Because I was so into the film, and I know it was LA, but there was a Christmas party going on. And so when I got out, there was something that didn't connect right. It was a demonstration of how strongly this film had suspended my disbelief. There are very few films that have done this, and I can't think of another action film that had done it so effectively. It was not only a great movie to see, but it was one of those movie-going experiences that makes me still a fan of going to the movies. I'm still chasing that high. So on today's show, I'd like to talk to you about a film that is now legendary, the 1988 film Die Hard. We'll talk about the people in front of and behind the camera, its production, the book it's based on, the music. We'll discuss if this film is in fact a Christmas film or not. And Metagirl's back with a great top five list. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
Die Hard is a 1988 action film that was directed by John McTiernan. It was written by Stephen D'Souza and Jeb Stewart, and it starred Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Reginald Vell Johnson, and Bonnie Bedelia. This movie was based on the book Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe, but it has some differences. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the book first. It is available if you wanted to read it. I read it a few years ago just to see what it was like. The book was written in 1979, and it's an action thriller, a sequel to the 1966 novel The Detective, which was made into a movie starring Frank Sinatra. Thorpe wrote the book after seeing the film The Towering Inferno, which is a 1975 film about a skyscraper that catches on fire. Real fun to watch. This film had an effect on Thorpe, and he had this dream of a person being chased through a skyscraper with guns. When he woke up from that dream, he started working on a book that would become Nothing Lasts Forever. The book was very well received, and it had been shopped around for a while. The film that would become Die Hard doesn't have connections to the detective. They change quite a lot, but there are are elements that make it from the book into the movie. Things like the C4 explosives, the leap off of the roof of the building with the fire hose attached to the waist, and the clever taping of the gun to the back at the end of the film. All of that's in the book. But other than that, a lot changes. The book was about terrorists taking over an oil corporation, and instead of trying to rescue the main character's wife, it's his daughter, because he's a bit of an older character in the book. The film is credited to two writers, although they would take direction from other creative people, the producers and director of the film, and it would get a lot of rewrites. But the people who would get credits are Jeb Stewart, who is an American screenwriter, director, producer, wrote The Fugitive and Die Hard. The other person who came in to write the film is a legendary action writer, Stephen D'Souza, who not only worked on Die Hard, but also did Commando and Judge Dredd. Stewart, who had been initially tasked with writing the film, had been actually struggling with a hook for the film. And as the story goes, he was working these long 18-hour days, split between his home in Pasadena, California, and his writing in Burbank. One day, he got into a very bad argument with his wife, and then while driving, he hit a large refrigerator box on the road. Now, that box turned out to be empty, but Stewart had this thought, what if it hadn't been? What if something terrible had happened to him? What if he couldn't go home to reconcile with his wife? He would go home and write 35 pages that night. And the idea of a stubborn person not being able to reconcile with their spouse became a central part of how he would write Die Hard. Stewart at this point had not really written an action film. And so that might seem like a negative, but it allowed him to focus more on creating a relationship between the characters, which ultimately makes you feel stronger feelings about the main characters and makes you want them to have a happy ending. They started to pitch this film around town basically as Rambo in an office building, which is humorous because after Die Hard, a lot of pitches would become Die Hard on a boat or Die Hard on a bus. Ultimately, Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver would serve as producers and they hired John McTiernan to direct, mostly based on his success from the 1987 action film Predator. McTiernan had an issue with the film, though. He didn't like that the adversaries were terrorists. According to McTiernan, My principal concern going into this was that it was a story that concerned terrorists, and terrorist movies are usually mean, filled with all sorts of mean, nasty acts. 
and I didn't want to say yes to this project until we figured out some way to put, in essence, some joy in it. To that end, they turned the villains from terrorists into thieves who were going after money. They also changed the original script to be from something that takes place over three days to something that takes place in just one night. John Campbell McTiernan Jr., or John McTiernan, would go on to direct the film. He's an American filmmaker who has directed action films like Predator, Die Hard, and The Hunt for Red October. He also directed the underrated Last Action Hero and the third Die Hard film, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Oddly enough, for such a successful director, he hasn't worked since 2003. The producers of the film, Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver, both specialize in action films. In addition to the Die Hard films, Gordon also did the Predator films, as well as Point Break, so some good action bona fides there. Joel Silver, in addition to action films, also produced quite a bit of comedy films, movies like Weird Science, 48 Hours, stand alongside films like Lethal Weapon, Predator, and Roadhouse, still producing movies up until very recently. If you have not seen Die Hard, you really should, but I'm going to go quickly through the plot. It takes place on Christmas Eve in 1988, and New York detective John McClane is coming to Los Angeles to hopefully reconcile with his wife, Holly, who works at the Nakatomi Corporation at Nakatomi Plaza, and her name is Holly, maiden name Gennaro. He gets picked up at the airport by Argyle, who is a limo driver, and he's taken to this building, Nakatomi Plaza, right away. He gets into an argument with his wife, mostly because she had started to use her maiden name because it was better for business. And frankly, he's not around. This is all happening at the backdrop of a Christmas party, and they are the only ones in the building at this point because it's late. At this point, heavily armed thieves come in, grab all the people at the party, and they are planning this massive heist. The rest of the world doesn't know this. McLean is not picked up by them. Instead, he escapes tries to call out, gets the attention of one police officer who's assigned to go see what's going on, Al Powell. Now, these criminals have a pretty good plan. It's very intricate, and it does ultimately involve killing everyone in the building. McLean doesn't know that, but he does know he has to take these people out. He starts killing them all one by one, ultimately has a big standoff with the leader, Hans Gruber, and the film has a happy ending. Of course, a whole lot more goes on there, but you get the idea. After these messages, we will return. This is Stop Thief, a computerized cops and robbers game where an electronic crime scanner gives you clues Door. to catch an invisible thief. A broken window. Footsteps. In Stop Thief, when you think you know where the thief is, make the arrest. Here come the cops. I think so. Nine volt battery not included. Stop Thief, an electronic cops and robbers game, new from Parker Brothers. And now, back to the show. Principal shooting began in November of 1987. This was going to be a big 1988 release. The film had a budget that was reported between 25 and 35 million dollars. And almost all the filming took place in Fox Plaza in Century City, which is on the Avenue of the Stars in L.A. It is Nakatomi Plaza, and it still exists today. They needed the right location and would have to build lots of sets if they couldn't find the right building. Luckily, 
Fox Plaza was available and mostly unoccupied because it was under construction. According to the cinematographer Jan de Bont, who would go on to be quite a director himself, only four or five stories of the building were occupied at the time of shooting. But they still had to negotiate a lot to get this film done because they didn't want to disrupt business that was happening. So the two conditions for filming Die Hard at Fox Plaza were no filming during the day, and they couldn't damage the building from explosions. With all of the real explosions they used in Die Hard, I find this sort of surprising. As I said, the film would get some rewrites while moving forward, and one of the biggest mysteries was, how were they going to end this film? They didn't know when filming began. This meant that certain scenes had to be cut, and other ones added. It also allowed some of the smaller roles a bit of room for improvisation, which probably makes a lot of these actors stand out a bit and makes the film a lot more fun. Sinatra was offered the role in this, and then the lead of the film was offered to a lot of people. This included Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Clint Eastwood, Richard Gere, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Don Johnson, Richard Dean Anderson, Paul Newman, James Caan, just about everyone who had done anything hinting at an action film or a cop film was asked to do it, and they all said no. Bruce Willis was mainly known for his work on Moonlighting at the time, which was a romantic comedy television series. So he was not even close to the first choice from anyone to play the role. But when they did offer it to him, inevitably, at first he had to turn it down because he had contractual obligations to Moonlighting. Luckily, his co-star in Moonlighting, Sybil Shepherd, got pregnant, and they shuttered Moonlighting for 11 weeks. This would give Willis time to take the role of John McClane. He would get a very large salary for this film, $5 million. The problem was that Bruce Willis, while beloved now, he was sort of a mixed bag back then. A lot of people weren't convinced that he could carry a film. Some say he got the role mostly because everyone else turned it down and that the very large price tag for 1988 was the studio saying, you might not realize this, but Bruce Willis is a big star. Look, we're giving him $5 million. As we'll talk about a little later, the studio would lose confidence in what Willis was bringing to the table and would walk back even the moderate amount of trust that they were putting into him as a star. Luckily for them, they were wrong. Bruce Willis who was born Walter Bruce Willis, was born in 1955 as an actor and producer, born in Germany, raised mostly in New Jersey, got his big break on the 1985 television series Moonlighting. After that, he would go on to appear in over 70 films, as well as release a couple of albums and a memorable wine cooler commercial. I think that Die Hard was very lucky to get Bruce Willis as John McClane. He has an everyman quality that really works. But they were even more lucky to get Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber, the leader of these criminals. Alan Sidney Patrick Rickman passed away in 2016, English actor, director. This would be the feature film debut of Alan Rickman, who had only appeared in theater and on British television, and he was 41 at the time of filming. He was very nervous about this and kind of would get typecast in the role, but he took it very seriously, studying German, studying how... German people spoke English, and it's all up there on screen. He is just electrifying when you see him and delivers the goods, and he makes a great villain to play opposite John McClane. He wasn't the first person offered the role. 
One of the people who turned down the role of Hans Gruber was Sam Neill. Reginald Vell Johnson played LAPD Sergeant Al Powell. Well, this is Vell Johnson's biggest film. He also had roles in Turner and Hooch and Crocodile Dundee. This would lead to him getting a role on the TV show Family Matters, where he played the head of the Winslow family, Carl Winslow. He would be on that show from 1989 till 1998. Bonnie Bedelia landed the role of John McClane's wife, Holly Gennaro McClane, who is a executive at the Nakatomi Corporation. Bonnie Bedelia Culkin, that's right, she is a Culkin. She's the aunt of Macaulay Culkin, was born in 1948. She landed the role on Bruce Willis's suggestion after seeing her in the film Heart Like a Wheel, where she played drag racer Shirley Muldowney. Other people who were considered for this role include Deborah Winger, Michelle Pfeiffer, Jamie Lee Curtis, Kelly McGillis, and Linda Hamilton. Alexander Gudnoff played Carl, who was Gruber's second-in-command. Just a great villainous-looking fellow, although... Not always playing villains in films. He was in the movie Witness, where he didn't play a villain. And then he was in the 1986 film Money Pit, where he sort of plays a bit of a heel. Gudnoff was a Russian ballet dancer who had defected to the United States when touring with the Bolshoi Ballet in New York City in 1979. This movie has a very large cast, a lot of noteworthy people, but hard to talk about them all. Hart Bachner plays the sleazy Nakatomi executive Harry Ellis, and he's brilliant in the role. James Shigeta played Joseph Takagi, who was the executive of the Nakatomi Corporation. Another great bit of casting. He really looks, acts, and sounds like a leader. Wonderful character actor Paul Gleason plays Dwayne T. Robinson, who's the deputy chief of the LAPD. Devereaux White plays the limo driver Argyle, who in the end turns out to be a big hero one of just a few people who actually takes on the terrorists. William Atherton does an amazing job playing the reporter with questionable morals, Richard Thornburg, and Grand L. Bush and Robert Davy play special agents Big Johnson and Little Johnson. The film also has a cast of henchmen that work for Hans Gruber. I already mentioned Alexander Gudnoff as Carl, who's the second in command, but you also had Clarence Gilliard as Theo, the tech specialist, Bruno Doyon as Franco, Andreas Wisniewski as Tony, Joey Plua as Alexander, Lorenzo Cacialanza as Marco, Gerard Bond as Christoph, Dennis Hayden as Eddie, the legendary Al Leong as Uli, Gary Roberts as Heinrich, Hans Beringer as Fritz, and Wilhelm von Homburg as James. It is a lot of people, and the henchmen are all wonderful some better than others. So I'd like to turn the show over to Metagirl, who has a top five about the best henchmen from the film Die Hard. Five, four, three, two, one. Greetings, retro fans. This is Metagirl bringing you the top five henchmen from the action thriller Die Hard. At number five is Uli, played by Al Leong. Leong is considered one of the greatest cinematic henchmen of all time. There's even a documentary that explores his life as an action sidekick. As the henchman Uli, he had few lines but a memorable scene. While defending the lobby during the LAPD's attempt to penetrate the Nakatomi building, he notices some candy bars for sale at the newspaper stand where he's posted. He helps himself to a crunch bar and later a Mars bar. Henching is hungry work! 
The candy munching was actually improvised by Leong as he felt the scene could use some comic relief. Wooly was the eighth man in Hans's group to be killed by John McClane. Number four is Tony Vreski, played by Andreas Wisniewski. Tony is a notable henchman for three reasons. One, Tony was the first of Hans's group to die, having broken his neck when falling down some stairs during a fight with McClane. Two, he's Carl's brother, who is Hans Gruber's second in command, and avenging Tony's death becomes a major motivator for Carl throughout the movie. And three, Tony becomes a demonstration of McLean's dark sense of humor when John sends Tony's corpse to the villains adorned in a Santa hat and a sweatshirt with the words, Now I've got a machine gun, ho, 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 written across the front. Number three is Marco, portrayed by Lorenzo Casialanza. Marco is a standout henchman for an encounter with McLean where his own bravado gets him killed. During this battle, McLean takes cover under a conference table. Marco leaps onto the table and fires his machine gun into the tabletop. As Marco steps forward shooting, McLean moves along the floor below, avoiding the bullets. As they reach the end of the table, Marco reloads his weapon with theatrical flourish and says, next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. McLean responds by unloading his gun through the tabletop into Marco's groin, sarcastically thanking him for his advice, and then dropping his body from the 34th floor window onto the hood of Sergeant Al Powell's police car. Marco was the third of Gruber's gang to die. At number two is Theo, portrayed by Clarence Gilliard Jr. Theo is an interesting henchman because he's not the typical thuggish killer of Hans's crew, but rather a weaselly nerd brought along for his computer hacking and code cracking skills. Theo is snarky and irreverent, constantly making jokes, especially when others are killed. For example, in the LAPD raid scene, Theo uses video surveillance to guide his comrades on how to thwart the cops by framing his direction in Twas the Night Before Christmas verbiage. And then, when the terrorists destroy the police's armored car, he exclaims, The quarterback is toast! Theo is also notable for being the only bad guy to have definitively survived to the end of the movie. And the number one henchman from Die Hard is Carl Vreski, played by Alexander Gudinov. Carl is Hans Gruber's right-hand man and the top dog of the henching crew. For Carl, the takeover of Nakatomi Plaza becomes more than just a cash grab when his brother Tony is killed by John McClane, making vengeance his top priority. In the final scene of the film, Carl, who was presumed dead after a brutal confrontation with McLean, emerges from the building disguised as a hostage, ready to make a final attempt to avenge his brother, which ultimately costs him his own life when he is shot dead by Sergeant Al Powell. Interestingly, Carl was the first person to kill someone in Die Hard and was the last of Gruber's group to be killed. He is also the only terrorist member who is not killed by John McLean. And there you have it, the Retroist's top five henchmen from the movie Die Hard. Until next time, List fans, this has been Metagirl. Thanks, Metagirl. The building that was used as Nakatomi Plaza was completed in 1987, although still partially empty, and it was designed by Scott Johnson, Bill Fain, and William Pereira. This would be Pereira's last building where he passed away in 1985. He didn't live to see it open. It was featured in four major motion pictures. It was the star of Die Hard. It's also used in a movie called Motorama, as well as the comedy Airheads and the Fincher film Fight Club. In addition to 
entertainment people working there. The building was also famous as the post-presidency home of former U.S. President Ronald Reagan, whose offices were on the 34th floor of the building for many years after he had left public office. Now that floor is occupied by 20th Century Studios. If you do watch this film and you see McLean walk into Nakatomi Plaza, one of the first things he encounters are these Nakatomi Plaza touchscreens where you get to basically browse a directory. And in 88, these were still rather new and cool. I know we have them all in our pockets now. It really bothers me the way that they designed the interface for these touchscreens. There's basically no back button on them. And I know it's basically there just to forward the story and it's not important. But I think a lot more effort goes into creating operating systems that you use on computers nowadays when you create films and television shows. You actually see this interface extends to other things in the Nakatomi Corporation. When Theo is trying to crack the passwords to break into the vault, you get to see the same sort of interface used. And it's still very fictional looking. These operating systems and touchscreens, the things we see, are very important to world building. So when they're so flawed, it really bothers me. The music of Die Hard was arranged by Michael Arnold Kamen. Kamen passed away in 2003, was an orchestral arranger, songwriter, musician. He would be nominated for two Academy Awards and would win three Grammy Awards, two Golden Globes, and an Emmy. He would provide music for films like The Dead Zone, Brazil, Highlander, X-Men, The Lethal Weapon films, The Die Hard films, Iron Giant, and many more. A very strong musical talent. One piece of music that McTiernan wanted in the film was Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, or the Ode to Joy. Kamen objected profusely to using it. He said he didn't want to misuse Beethoven, and instead said, why not some Wagner? Kamen thought that using Beethoven didn't make sense in an action film, especially with all this violence. But then he was pointed out by McTiernan that... Beethoven's Ninth had been used in A Clockwork Orange, which Kamen was a big fan of. The Die Hard soundtrack is a great score. The film also has some great non-scored music. One big oversight in the original release of the soundtrack was that Run DMC's Christmas in Hollis, which appears in the movie, wasn't included in Michael Kamen's soundtrack album. But when they did a 2011 reissue, it was included. There's a fun Aliens connection with Die Hard. There's a musical cue at the end where Powell has a standoff with Carl, and in that they use an unused track from James Horner's soundtrack for the film Aliens from 1986. Since it wasn't used in the film, it was available for reuse, and McTiernan thought it sounded really good, so it was used. Even before Die Hard was released, people were questioning if Willis could carry the film. And they kept revising the expectation of the film lower and lower. And instead of putting it where they would put a Schwarzenegger or a Stallone film, they were putting it next to comedies like Big Top Pee Wee and Bull Durham. 
you can see their confidence in Willis eroding just in the marketing at the time. In the film's early marketing, Willis was featured quite prominently. But as Willis developed a reputation as kind of being aloof, some would say arrogant, as his fame rose, feedback from people about the film and knowing he was in it was negative. And so as the marketing campaign moved forward, they slowly started pulling Bruce Willis out of being front and center. There's a story that says that when they would show the trailer in theaters and Bruce Willis would appear, the audience would groan because they weren't a fan of Bruce Willis and that a certain theater chain pulled the trailer because of this negative response. By the time the film came out, the film's posters were changed to basically feature Nakatomi Plaza, the building, and Willis's name was in tiny print. Willis wasn't shy about promoting the film, though. He was on board and a team player going out promoting the film, even though he was famous for not liking to do that. It seemed like this was a perception issue. People weren't sure where they were about to get, but they were very wrong, and things were about to change very quickly. They have already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. High above L.A., a team of terrorists have seized a building. Oh! They're ready for anything, except a New York cop trapped inside. Come on to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Bruce Willis, Die Hard. But all things being equal, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Rated R. Now playing at theaters everywhere. The film had a smaller release in mid-July of 1988. It had a very high per theater gross at the time. This was a surprise to many people. What had happened was critics went and saw the film and people went and saw the film and it started to get positive reviews and soon became the must-see film of July. The film would get a wide release on July 22nd, 1988 in 1,200 theaters and the film earned $7.1 million when it opened and it would finish as the number three film of the weekend behind Coming to America and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The film would never have the number one spot at the box office, but it would spend 10 straight weeks in the top five. In total, in the U.S., the film earned between 81 and $83 million, making it the seventh highest grossing film of 1988. Outside of America, it earned about $60 million, making the worldwide for Die Hard about $140 million, which would make it worldwide the 10th highest grossing film of 1988. Worldwide, the top 10 films of 1988 were in this order. Rain Man, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, Crocodile Dundee 2, Twins, Rambo, A Fish Called Wanda, Cocktail, Big, and then Die Hard and Naked Gun are tied for 10th. When Die Hard came out, what was in the theater at the time? You had Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, The Deadpool, Midnight Run, Bambi, Big Top Peewee, Caddyshack 2, Big, and Bull Durham. Die Hard had positive to mixed reviews, but I think a lot of people were pleasantly surprised. When you look at critics at the time and read their reviews, a lot of them do not have high opinions of action films, especially the ever-growing action films of the 80s. Words like excessive were often used when describing these films. And the film does have lots of explosions, and it is a non-stop roller coaster ride. But even the criticisms could be kind of positive. Critic Vincent Canby said that it was 
the perfect film for our time. And likened it to snorting pure oxygen. Now, I think there's meant to be a certain amount of criticism in there. But at the same time, if you're an action fan, those are the things that appeal to you and make you want to go see it. One person who is universally praised in the film is Alan Rickman. He does a perfect job playing the villain in the film. Personally, I can't speak highly enough of his performance in this film. And it seems like even the people who are the most critical seem to agree. The film would receive four Academy Award nominations, including Best Film Editing, Best Visual Effects, Best Sound Effects, and Best Sound. They didn't win a single one. Who Framed Roger Rabbit would scoop him on the first three, and the film Bird would win for Best Sound. One of the big controversies about Die Hard isn't the violence, it's not the script, it's not its production, it's, is this a Christmas movie? It has been a long-standing debate that gets the internet fired up. Even the people who made the film, McTiernan and Willis, disagree. McTiernan said he thinks it's one. Willis said it's not. Generally, both sides will have an opinion that involves things like, it's a Christmas movie because it's set during Christmas and it takes place at a holiday party. It also has some themes that are sort of Christmassy, reuniting with family, etc. People who say it's not a Christmas movie talk about the fact that it wasn't released as a Christmas movie. It simply takes place during Christmas and also that at the time there wasn't an intent to even make it a Christmas film. 20th Century Fox has embraced the yes, Die Hard is a Christmas film when the 30th anniversary came about. They released a trailer calling it the greatest Christmas story ever told. If Die Hard is a Christmas film or not a Christmas film really depends on you and how strongly you feel about your definitions of Christmas films. It definitely has themes of Christmas wishes and takes place during the holiday season, but it certainly doesn't have any of the traditional Christmas tropes. Ultimately, this controversy actually works in favor of Die Hard. Whenever you can start people arguing over something, it's free advertising. So get online and argue whatever way you want. Is it a Christmas film or not? Whatever you think, as long as you're angry enough and yell loud enough, it gets more people interested in Die Hard. So I'm all for it. I worked at a video store when Die Hard was released. When it was released, it cost almost $90. And I was working at a store that sold videotapes at this point, And we had a hard time keeping it in. Even at $90, people were buying it. It was also very popular on the rental charts. It spent six of its first seven weeks in release at number one on the rental charts until it was replaced in March of that year by A Fish Called Wanda. It would also get releases on most medias, DVD, Laserdisc, Blu-ray, and is of course available on streaming platforms today. After these messages, we will return. Hey, me fella. Look here. Seagulls. And now, back to the show.
Die Hard would spawn four film sequels, the original being so popular they rushed Die Hard 2 into production. McTiernan was replaced by Rennie Harlan for Die Hard 2. This was also set during Christmas, but at an airport. They would then do Die Hard 3, which was set in New York and had Samuel Jackson in it. Then they would take a long break and in 2007 would release Live Free or Die Hard. Finally, a fifth film would be released in 2013, A Good Day to Die Hard, where McLean teams up with his son Jack for an adventure in Moscow. Now, the big criticism of the Die Hard franchise as it's moved along is that it gets away from John McClane as the everyman cop, and instead he becomes more like the very action stars that he was replacing in 1988. And hence, people who really love the earlier movies tend to not think so highly of the films that would follow. Die Hard was never merchandised heavily. They would have some video game releases for various platforms and an arcade game. There would be a prequel comic book, a board game. There is a great book called Die Hard, The Ultimate Visual History, which was released in 2018 to coincide with the film's 30th anniversary that chronicles the development of the film. And that's pretty well made if you're a Die Hard fan. It's a good book to own. Die Hard was a success at the time, but its real legacy is just how much it has endured over the years and how popular it has remained. In 2017, Die Hard was selected by the Library of Congress to be preserved in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And in 2007, Bruce Willis donated the undershirt that he wore to the Smithsonian Institute. Die Hard has transcended just some action film and has made it into the zeitgeist. It altered not only the action star, but Rickman's performance made it so that villains needed to be better. Because of Die Hard, the action films that would follow would all be taken up a notch. So whenever you decide to enjoy it, maybe during the Christmas time, maybe in the middle of the summer, why not check out Die Hard again? It's a great film filled with extremely talented people in front of and behind the camera that I can say with confidence is an iconic, timeless classic. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email peachy at peachy at retroist.com. Thanks to Metagirl for a great top five list. This is Metagirl's favorite film, so I appreciate her taking the time to put together such a great list. If you have feedback for Metagirl, you can email her at metagirl at retroist.com. You can also follow her on Twitter. She's at twitter.com slash metagirl. That's M-E-T-A-G-R-R-L. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. yippee ki melon farmer. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.